From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. Starting with the Muslim ban in the early days of the Trump presidency, this administration has announced new policies designed to keep immigrants out on a nearly weekly basis. This feels like an unprecedented wave of restrictions, but anti-immigrant rhetoric and policies have deep roots in our country. Here to discuss another period in American history when the nation's gates were slammed shut is Daniel Okrent, an award-winning writer and editor. His most recent book is The Guarded Gate, Bigotry, Eugenics, and the Law that Kept Two Generations of Jews, Italians, and Other European Immigrants Out of America. The book details the political dynamics that created anti-immigrant zeal in the early 20th century and the junk science that was used to justify it. Daniel Okren, thanks very much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Emerson. Happy to be here. Your book tells an interesting story from the early part of our 20th century, and in many ways you track a debate that culminates in the Immigration Act of 1924. Can you start by telling us about that law and what restrictions it imposed? The 1924 Act was by far the most severe immigration restriction law in American history. First, it reduced the number of immigrants allowed into the country to 160,000. As recently as 10, 12 years before that, there were over a million coming in every year. And then most importantly, it established national quotas based on the percentage of people from each nation that were already in the U.S. So that, for instance, 10% of Americans uh, could trace their origins to country A, then 10% of the immigrants would be from country A. And the worst part of it is they didn't use the 1920 census to determine this, or the 1910, or even the 1900 census. They went back to 1890, the last census before the huge immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe began, and computed the shares that each nation would have from that. So that the consequence was that as many as 220,000 Italians had come in a year, previous to the 1924 Act, and the 1924 Act reduced it to fewer than 5,000. And uh, similarly for all other Eastern and Southern European people. And that stayed in place for 41 years. Well, it's fascinating that there was both an overall cap, but also, as you said, these national quotas, both of which resonate with the current time. But sticking with the period that's covered in your book, can you tell us about what sort of political dynamics came together to give life to this act? Well, there were a number of things. There was, uh, first of all, the inherent xenophobia that has cropped up in American history from the very beginning. You know, you go back as far as the 1750s, where a newspaper editor in Pennsylvania wrote that the Pennsylvania colony was being destroyed by the influx of Germans who were coming to not only uh, to hurt the colony as a whole, but also to even destroy the English language. That was a newspaper editor named Benjamin Franklin. Uh, to indicate uh, uh, you know how deep these roots are, and then it goes like a sine wave throughout American history. In times of economic stress, usually the immigrants are the first people to be blamed and the first people that people want to keep out. There was a period when immigrants were wanted very badly, in the period after the Civil War, when bodies were needed to hew the forests and to build the railroads. And then when you get to the 1890s and there's some economic trouble, then a big anti-immigration movement begins. The sine wave pattern we certainly can trace through our history, and I want to come back to that. But 
You talked about the issue of xenophobia and specifically race played an interesting role. It's not exactly how we understand race today, but race was central to the debate in 1924. Uh, absolutely true. And what we mean by race is very different from what was meant by race at the time. This cockeyed view of race that really divided uh, even the European peoples into a variety of different races so that the predominant view put forth by a really virulent uh, anti-immigrant, anti-Semitic, anti-Catholic New York aristocrat named Madison Grant, he maintained that there were three European races. The Nordics, who were tall and blonde and brave, and they built uh, Western culture. The Alpines, who were somewhat shorter, and they were all right, and they were artisans and needed to have them around. And the Mediterraneans, who were the lowest of the low, they were short and swarthy, and they weren't worth a lot. And of course, that was speaking specifically about the Italians, whom Grant despised. And he said that the merger between any two, the marriage between any two people from these uh, groups, automatically the offspring would revert to the lower form. So if a Nordic married an Alpine, their children would be Alpines. And if an Alpine married a Mediterranean, their children would be Mediterraneans. And he wrote, the marriage between any two members of any of the European races and a Jew would yield a Jew. And the sense that there was a racial distinction, not just a religious or a cultural or an ethnic uh, nationality distinction between, say, Italians and Greeks and Austrians and Germans, really was uh, unprecedented when there were different kinds of white people and the white people of the Eastern and Southern European nations were deemed inferior. It's almost a one-drop rule among Europeans. Exactly, exactly like that. So yeah, you were right, Emerson, to point out the comparisons to today. Uh, I think that when Trump began office and he was trying to keep out Muslims from the Arab countries, you could have said he was trying to keep out Arabs. And the current controversy at the southern border, the so-called uh, rapists and murderers and invaders that he has repeatedly invoked, is directed against Hispanics. So you have a repeat of what happened in the 19-teens and 20s leading to the 1924 Act. The consequences of that act were, of course, dreadful and tragic because of the number of Europeans who could not leave Europe for the U.S. in the years following 1924. And this is, in many ways, sort of -of run-of-the-mill prejudice, racism that people have had throughout history. But there was an interesting uh, dynamic that developed in the early 20s around eugenics. Can you tell us about eugenics and the role that it played in the development of this anti-immigrant craze? Sure. This anti-immigrant craze begins in the 1890s with the influx of the Eastern European Jews and the Italians uh, into the eastern cities of the U.S. And from that point forward, the anti-immigration movement tried to enact laws that would cut down on that immigration. It was led by Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, the most powerful member of the Senate in the period. And four times between 1896 and 1917, the Congress passed laws that would have reduced immigration from those countries. And four times, presidents vetoed those laws. And usually they would veto them on the grounds that, you know, we are a country of, you know, freedom and we make no distinction between nationalities. All are welcome here. We are a nation of immigrants. So the anti-immigrants needed to come up with something else. And what they found was eugenics, which, if you'll excuse the expression, was the bullshit science that determined that there were different qualities of not just individuals, but of ethnic and national groups. And the eugenics movement begins in the U.K., really in the wake of Darwin back in the 1860s. It crosses the ocean in 1900. And at first, it was used to say, well, we don't want people coming in who have 
obvious disabilities. So the term of of art at the time was feeble-minded. They didn't want epileptics. They didn't want the blind. They didn't want the deaf. But by 1915, 1916, when Madison Grant wrote his book, suddenly the the anti-immigrationists who had been losing the political battle, they seized upon this and said, this isn't prejudice. We don't dislike these people. We have science that proves they're inferior, and we must pay attention to what science tells us. And from that moment forward, from 1915, 1916, until the passage of the 1924 law, it was the eugenic argument that carried the day. I think probably the most chilling part of your book is the way that eugenics became common knowledge and accepted by a huge variety of different people and subgroups within the United States. What does it mean when the accepted science is wrong? Uh, it's pretty terrifying, and we see the consequences of it then. The, you know, as you say, it was the accepted science. The number of institutions that either added to the eugenic argument or spread the doctrine of the eugenic argument, uh, it's kind of scary. It was the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories on Long Island. It was the American Museum of Natural History. It was prominent faculty members at Princeton and Columbia and Stanford. The Carnegie uh, Institution of Washington provided the financial support. The Harriman family, they almost single-handedly paid for the initial uh, eugenic research in the U.S. The Rockefeller Foundation was behind it. So you had virtually the entire mass of American science and those who supported American science saying that eugenics was uh, something that had scientific merit. So it was not a surprise when the politicians picked up that call that people listened. Well, we're not prejudiced, as I said before. We're not prejudiced. We are just following the rules of science. Or as one particular uh, anti-immigration leader, a a staunch progressive, in fact, an early backer of the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, said at the time, you know, we love the Jews, but that doesn't mean we want them anywhere near us. Wow. uh, Because it's dangerous. Wow. One of the central arguments in your book is around how people's inherent prejudice led to public policy and then how eugenics was used to bolster that policy. But it's a little bit complicated to understand what started this process and what was a legitimate belief by these people and what was just used as an excuse. How do you untangle that causal knot? It's very, very hard to untangle it. But I think that at its base, uh, inherent prejudices that preexisted even the arrival of the Eastern Europeans and Southern Europeans, and then was aggravated by the large numbers that were suddenly visible to the anti-immigrationists. The prejudices were there. There was a built-in prejudice, particularly among the upper classes of the Northeast. And you find some of the noblest figures in our history embrace these prejudices. And then when they stumbled, and I think that was really the term, when they stumbled across the eugenic argument, they saw it as, oh, I've been right all along. This proves my point that these people are inferior. If you begin with a prejudice and then you are provided an intellectual justification for your prejudice, it's not only gratifying, it's very, very effective. Well, we've talked a bit about what led to the Immigration Act of 1924, but let's play the, the story a little bit forward. What brought an end to this craze? World War II and the rise of the Nazis in Germany played a critical role. Absolutely. Uh, What you see happening around uh, 1931, 1932, and then accelerating in the middle 30s is that the institutions that had supported the eugenic argument suddenly realize, oh my God, look what we've done. And they begin to run away from it. They begin to drop their support for it. Some say they were never involved in it, but there's this very clear, almost humiliating sense that 
uh, the, these bogus arguments that these scientists have been put forward uh, are the justification for the Nazis. And in fact, there was a great deal of, of connection between the American eugenic scientists and the Nazi eugenic scientists. They had been collaborating on various projects, not necessarily race-based, but they knew each other very well. They had been collaborating for 30 years. And you know, as late as 1931, one of the leading German eugenic scientists comes to the US, he tours, he visits various universities, he goes to the Cold Spring Harbor labs where he's accepted as a, you know, almost as a brother. And this was the man who later wrote the Nazi uh, euthanasia statutes and was uh, given the Goethe Medal by Hitler in 1939 for all he had done to support the Aryan race. Uh, and you see that even if the American uh, eugenicists had not been meaning to promote Nazi thought, it was inevitable. Hitler read the eugenics textbooks while he was in prison after the Munich Beer Hall Putsch in the early 20s. Uh, he cited Madison Grant in speeches, and the connections were invariable so that finally... At the uh, end of World War II, in, in 1946, at the doctor's trial in Nuremberg, the Nazi physicians, they used as their defense, they said, well, look what your American scientists were saying. We were only doing what they were doing. And as I say in the book, you know, we're used to the phrase, uh, well, we were only following orders. But really, they could have been saying, we were only following Americans. Wow. Well, if... The Nazis spoiled eugenics. Uh, we still clearly have the prejudice and many of the public policies that restrict immigration. Do you see any echoes of the eugenics movement uh, and rhetoric in current society, even if the central premise and the original textbooks are no longer cited? Well, I think it's basically, as I said before, it has to do with the nature of making ethnic distinctions. It's not, let's keep this individual out because he's no good or she's no good, and let's let this one in because he or she will add to the American gene pool and make us all better. When it's based on nationality, you're using the same kind of arguments. And it's clear that the Trump administration is directing their anti-immigrant uh, measures against specific, unwanted by them, nationalities. And... What changed? We experienced a period of relative openness after World War II. A few things happened. I mean, there was a sense of guilt of you know, our doors not having been open when these people might have come. But more, it begins to accelerate the openness during the 1950s, after the Soviet Union has occupied much of Eastern Europe, uh, put it behind the Iron Curtain. Suddenly, these Eastern European peoples who had been derided and despised, suddenly they were heroic. They were being kept imprisoned, as it were, by godless communism, uh, the captive nations of Eastern Europe. We needed to get help those people escape the yoke of communism. So over a period of time, you find not only an acceptance, but an encouragement of wanting people from Eastern Europe. And then the other thing that comes into play, of course, is the civil rights movement in the early 60s. And it is inevitable that the arguments of the civil rights movement that pertain to African Americans created an atmosphere of a questioning of uh, any form of race-based or ethnicity-based prejudice. So this culminates in 1965 when Congress passes the Hart-Seller Act and Lyndon Johnson signs it into law that ends all of the quotas, stops any kind of ethnic discrimination, and fundamentally creates the lottery system that uh, has been in place ever since, or at least until now. It's a fascinating story, and there are several lessons uh, and parallels that we can draw to today. Obviously, with our president making distinctions between immigrants from Norway and quote-unquote shithole countries, when you 
we're researching this book, how much was the current state of our society and our politics in mind? <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I, I take a long time to research my books. I spent five years on this one. And though the immigration issue was an issue back in late 2013, early 2014 when I started, that was during the Obama administration. It's when DACA looked like it was going to become permanent law or at least permanent policy. So though immigration was an issue, it wasn't the issue that it has become. And as I have said to my wife, I've never been so lucky that I was a year and a half late delivering a book, <laughs> uh, at least in terms of the, you know, the public consciousness of these issues being heightened uh, in an extreme way by what this White House has been doing. So that my book um, did not have the Trumpian policy uh, as a backdrop until really the last several months that I was working on it. But then it became so clear it was inescapable. So in the last line in the book, which was meant, as you'll see here, entirely ironically, but some people took it seriously, is that I, I say that on that beautiful uh, October day at Liberty Island when Lyndon Johnson signed the the Hart-Seller Act that ended the quotas into law, I said that the future of open immigration in America looked as bright as the sun overhead. Uh, I wrote that line after Trump was in office, and its irony was meant, obviously, to, to point out how that's not the case, and it never is the case. These issues keep coming back. Well, for those of us who are distraught by the current state of affairs, it is somewhat comforting to know that you know, our history is full of, of ebbs and flows. And uh, for those of us who are trying to push another flow, we can learn some lessons from our colleagues from the past. One hopes that we can. One of the things that I find most difficult is dealing with the fact that so many of the people who supported the anti-immigration movement were people that we would otherwise look upon as heroes uh, for other things that they did. The leading financial backer of the movement was an extremely wealthy Bostonian named Joseph Lee, who was known as the number one progressive in New England, who created the Massachusetts Civic League, who as chairman of the Boston School Committee kept the schools open at night so immigrants could learn English, who supported black civil rights in the South and in Boston, which was even a rarer thing for Bostonians to do. Yet at the same time, uh, he would write a letter to a friend saying that soon all of Europe may be drained of its Jews, perhaps to its benefit, but not to ours, and expressed the fear that America would become a Dago nation. <laughs> and then you find uh, people like Margaret Sanger, whose uh, passion for her own cause of the, the birth control movement uh, uh, led her to uh, some really unsavory affiliations with many of the most racist and anti-Semitic members of the anti-immigration movement. And at times she wrote about how one of the reasons we needed birth control, because just look in these Italian neighborhoods at how they're reproducing and living in filth. One goes on and on and on and sees that the anti-immigrant view was not necessarily one held by the right wing of its time, although many people like Madison Grant were very much of the right wing, but crossed uh, ideological borders. Another element of it was the, the labor movement. The American Federation of Labor opposed immigration and tried to help pass anti-immigration laws from the time that it was created. And Samuel Gompers, himself a Jewish immigrant from England, uh, he was uncontrollable in his rage at open immigration and worked very closely with people like Henry Cabot Lodge, whom he otherwise despised because he wanted to keep immigrants out. Well, in a former life, you were the public editor of the New York Times. And I think 
you know, your book is as much as anything an uh, intellectual history of this time period and the debates around immigration. But as someone who was trying to sort of keep your finger on the pulse of, of the New York Times readership and the society at large, I'm wondering if that experience provided any insights as to how uh, immigration is covered and discussed over the last few decades in the United States. Well, certainly my, my time as the public editor of the Times led me to look at all journalism <laughs> with a jaundiced eye. And I found it from that moment forward and in the years since, it's impossible for me to read the newspaper as a normal newspaper reader. I read it as somebody who was supposed to, to be critical and to look at it with a critical eye. Uh, and I think that the general coverage of the immigration issue is pretty good. I would like to say it's as good as it is strictly because of the presentation of factual matter to rebut the dishonest claims of the Trump administration. But I think it's also partly because, uh, much as I'm uncomfortable saying this, that, that Trump is to a degree right, that the American press is on a different side of the issue than he is. He, of course, doesn't say it as politely as that. But I, I think we do see the ideological viewpoint of the newspaper and broadcast writers and editors uh, definitely coming into the coverage. But the coverage is, it's important. It is showing the falsity and the cruelty of the Trump policies. Well, talking about the importance of the narrative and, and humanizing this issue and giving not just facts, but also stories and, and giving the full picture of the complexity and the ways that people experience immigration, you included your own family's path to the United States in the initial part of the book. And you sort of describe it as your forebearers uh, who were Jewish coming from Europe right before the gates were slammed shut and that experience informing how you look at immigration today. Well, I thought that it would be only uh, honest of me to say, look, I don't come at this entirely impartially. Uh, I come at this with some direct experience. First, on my father's side, poor shtetl Jews who came in 1911, who would have been precisely the people that the anti-immigrationists wanted to keep out and were able to keep out after 1924. And on my mother's side, my uh, Romanian Jewish grandfather was a physician. Uh, he would have been welcomed. There were exceptions in the law, but he made it in before 1924. And then when he was able to bring over my mother and her mother several years later because of what later became known as chain migration, because he was here, he was a citizen, and he had the right to do that. At the same time, I would like to think that even if this weren't my story, that I would be able to look at it with the same, I hope, fair and eventually impassioned perspective that I eventually did. But it was important for me to make it clear to readers that I'm not impartial here. And what's the big picture message that you want readers to be left with after reading the book? Is it that history is more complicated than we think? That it's cyclical? What, what's the big takeaway that we should, we should go home with? All of the above and, and plenty more things. And the point is that this feeling, not simply about immigrants, but about the other, however you define the other by race, by religion, by height, by weight, whatever it is, the need of the species, it seems to have someone else to look down on, to validate your own position by saying there's somebody lower than you are. This seems to be built in, it doesn't go away. I think that those people who say that none of us is entirely free of racism are basically right. We seem to have a species need to make the distinctions and to establish hierarchies. That's very, very discouraging, but presumably we have the intelligence and the investigative abilities and the analytical abilities to see the flaw in that kind of thinking and to see our way to a clearer sense 
of how we truly are all the same and connected to one another in infinite ways. Another aspect of it, and this is a particularly troubling one, I think, at at this moment in American history, uh, here was a case where 95% of the scientific establishment in America, the most credentialed people in America, sold this so-called science of eugenics as being authentic. Now, today, I desperately believe that the scientific consensus around uh, global warming is correct. But, but, you know, science only knows what it knows today. It doesn't know what it's going to learn tomorrow. I suspect that in 1917, the people who didn't like what the scientists were saying were saying, well, they will be disproved in time. And I think that those who don't believe in global warming are saying the same thing. And it would be intellectually dishonest to say that there isn't a similarity between the two. It is a troubling one, but there is a similarity. It's it's a fascinating insight. And if nothing else, it's helping us remember to be skeptical and to make judgments on our own. I really appreciate this contribution to the current debate and also all of your career's worth of work informing public debate. Thank you very much, Daniel O'Krent. This has been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace.